If you're trying to figure out how to navigate the tricky tightrope of parenting while you have questions, doubts, and wonderings about your spiritual journey, our podcast is for you. It doesn't matter if your kids are smalls, middles, or bigs. We'll explore what and how we're deconstructing from churchianity, harmful belief systems, and diving deep into the ways we can work this out in parenthood. We're also going to work through ideas for reconstructing a space for our families to thrive under new systems of love and freedom. We can't wait to bring you some hope that you're not alone and that it's really okay, even good, to explore all the possibilities that may have felt closed off in the past. Our podcast is going to offer you grace and space to be exactly where you are and who you are. We're really glad you're here and we're excited for today's episode. Listen in. Following Jesus out of the entanglements of Christian supremacy and white supremacy are deep convictions. We believe God desires so much more from the church than the frequently empty religiosity and hypocrisy we have become adjusted to. Drew Hart. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Deconstructing Mamas podcast. Today, we're talking with Drew Hart. Drew is a father, a writer, and a theology professor in the Biblical and Religious Studies Department at Messiah College and has 10 years of pastoral experience. He's got a lot to share with us today. So, Drew, thanks for being on. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation together. We're really excited to get into some deep stuff. But before we do that, what does your day look like? What does your family look like? And outside of some of this bigger stuff that you do, what is something that makes your heart come alive or a little passion that you might have that people might not know about you? Yeah, let's see. So my day, you know, every day I feel like, I don't know if I have a day of what it looks like. It looks a little different almost every day, which is kind of fun. Some of it is because I, well, I am a professor, so I do a lot of teaching. You know, I have a full family, which I'll talk about in a moment in terms of family life. Um, but I also partner and collaborate with a lot of different folks and do speaking. So my every day, you know, I'm always, I look in the morning at my schedule. I'm like, huh, this would be interesting, you know, and I kind of, you know, execute. Some days I'm teaching courses at Maasai University. I also at Maasai, I'm program director for Thriving Together. So I spend a lot of time working with local congregations in our region, working with them, kind of, it's like a two-year program leading them towards working towards racial justice. And so mm-hmm. we worked 12 congregations already through that program. And now we just launched another two years wow. with a new set of 12 congregations all in central Pennsylvania. So that's exciting working with local congregations in that capacity. That is really exciting. Can I just ask a quick question about that? Yes, please, please do. Please do. Have you found that the churches have been fairly receptive to your work? Yeah. So all the churches that are part of it, they had to apply to be a part of it. So number one, they had to want to be a part of it, and then they had to be accepted. <laughs> and there is some commitment levels that we have for them in terms of their participation as well. And so a lot of people initially told us, uh, you'll never get that many churches engaged in racial justice work in central Pennsylvania of all places. But I think that there are actually a lot more churches and people realize that recognize at least that there's a problem and that they want to be not a part of the harm, but the healing. Right. And so I think that they had to show some commitment in some practical way already prior to coming in. And we were grateful to have a really great cohort of churches and to have a new set that we're, you know, just getting going with. 
it's a lot of excitement. When you get at that local level, sometimes there's a lot more than just what you hear. There's other stuff happening on the ground as well that can be really encouraging. That is encouraging. Mm. That's really good to hear. Yeah. Yeah. So what about your family? Yeah. So I am married to my wife, Renee. We actually got married in Harrisburg way back in 2008, actually leaving Harrisburg in 2008. And then we have three boys, uh, Micah, Dietrich, and Vincent, so 12, 10, and six, almost seven years old. So we have a nice spread, that kind of preteen, little, almost teenager, little attitude going on. Middle school, elementary school, and um, yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. I joke about those three that individually they're like perfect angels by themselves, and then together it's like the triangle of evil in terms of how they torture each other, <laughs> and so they keep things very interesting. I grew up loving basketball, playing basketball, talking basketball, living basketball, breathing it, reading everything, right? And then because of like PhD program and family business and all that stuff, like actually playing kind of just dwindled off, especially with the PhD program. It just killed it. And then, so I went for about 10 years of not playing at all. And it's not until a year ago that I picked it back up again and been getting my 41 year old bones moving and, and playing again. So that's been kind of fun, painful at first, maybe more pain than fun at first, but now it's becoming more fun. So (laughs) I love that. Yeah, you remind me of my husband. He did the same thing. He played basketball. He's six, seven. So he played basketball, played it in college, was so excited, ate, slept, everything, and then kids and work and everything. And when he was around your age, 40, uh, and our kids were your kids' age, he got into like a work league. And we went and watched him play and it was so much fun and everybody was so excited. He couldn't really run the way he did when he was younger, but he was so tall that the younger guys at work would just feed it to him. Oh yeah. Well, when you're six, seven, I mean, that helps. helps. (laughs) So can you tell us a little bit about your faith background and maybe sum it up in one word or one phrase? And then why did you pick that word or phrase? Yeah. So I grew up in a non-denominational black congregation outside of Philly Hmm. and that faith community. And and I was, I usually say kind of black Baptist-ish, right? It's not officially black Baptist, but like almost everybody there was like black Baptist. They just didn't want to claim it, I guess. And so, yeah, that was the faith context. And my family, I come from like a line of like preachers on my, like, it was very patriarchal, but like all through my dad's side, like my dad, My grandfather was like church planting. My great grandfather did, you know, so I have like this legacy. So even in Philly, like when I go back, there's in certain spaces, like a lot of people know just my last name and there's somebody will run, you know, they'll see me like, you're a heart boy, aren't you? You know, that kind of thing. So (laughs) it's good for me to be outside of Philly sometimes just because, you know, it's good to be outside of those spaces, but not because I'm not speaking negatively, but just to have your own agency and be seen for who you are, right? Yeah. Rather than attached to and assumed who you are. Liz can relate to that a little bit, right, Liz? Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Yeah, a little, little bit. A little bit. <laughs> so how would I sum it up? I mean, I've often called it black evangelicalism, right? What I was raised in. Mm-hmm. And I say that to to both name that it is both evangelicalism, but also it wasn't mainstream expressions of evangelical, like there's a different kind of evangelicalism that was at work in that space. In fact, I don't know if in the name like Tom Skinner is recognized at all, but he was like friends with my grandfather, right? I do know that name. You know, like, 
And I'm not saying that everyone in my church was necessarily as radical as like Tom Skinner was, but that's the range, right? That was certainly permissible and normal in the life of the church. I often say anywhere from Tony Evans to Tom Skinner, right? That's my world, right? In terms of the kind of church that I was raised in. And both of those folks were friends with my grandfather and other folks, leaders here in Philly. So yeah, Black evangelicalism definitely describes the kind of faith backgrounds that I think I I would say I was raised in. So what would make it different than, say, white evangelicalism? Do you have like a couple things you could yeah. describe? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm i picturing like a lot more like liveliness. <laughs> well, cer- certainly on the uh, the actual worship side of things, the participatory side of things, absolutely, there is more of that. The Black evangelicalism, part of it is that our lived experiences bear witness to something that I think white dominant culture doesn't. So there's a sensitivity towards those that are the least last lost and little ones, right, in our world in a way that I think mm-hmm. when I came to, so I was an undergrad at Messiah for, you know, my first, and I was just caught off guard by some of my white evangelical peers, right, and the ways that they had been formed to think about others and the lack of compassion towards others and the suffering of others and questions of justice. You know, we were not reading James Cone when I was, you know, in church. Like that wasn't, you know, something that I was even introduced to. But there was a sensitivity in that direction because our own life stories and how we read the Bible and the questions that we asked, right, related to our lived experiences. And so, again, it was a range. Um, Not everyone, again, was Tom Skinner, per se. But even uh, Tony Evans talks about racism, right? And racial injustice. Um, Even if maybe I would do it a little differently than he would, those are on his radar and those are questions that he's raising. And so I think for me, that is the embodied praxis of faith looked a little bit different, even if there were some shared, you know, I would say black evangelicals in general, there are some exceptions to this, still have a lot of the same instincts around prioritizing, saving souls sometimes and how they talk about the Bible, maybe not exactly as heavily around the inerrancy stuff, but it's a little light. It's there, but light. I'm not caught up in it in the same way. So there's some of those elements that are shared and then also different because we also just were not as stressed about, you know, fights between white liberals and white conservatives to have it impact us in the same way that I think white fundamentalists, right, are are responding to some of these questions in a whole Mm. variety of ways. Right. A friend of mine who is an author and kind of a social media guy who helps churches, he says, which I think this is what you're getting at. We're so concerned about getting people to heaven that we forget to bring heaven to people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I said that class yesterday. Maybe that's like the difference between the two. Like, am I getting after the right thing? I mean, partly. I mean, I don't want to, I'm not going to overpaint the picture of the faith community. It was complex. It was messy. Yeah. And so there there were times in which it was otherworldly and not oriented towards the earth, right? And this world and the kingdom come. But there were times when it was, right? In very real ways. And I think that mm-hmm. growing up, I certainly had more sensitivity. So when I came and interacted for the first time with white evangelicals on my college campus, I knew I was different. Even as I had some shared vocabulary, mm-hmm. I knew also that there was something different going on 
that was animating. And also the Christian nationalism stuff mm. just didn't make sense to me. I was really confused around a lot of that stuff. I didn't had no idea mm. what was going on and why everybody was so into America. Right? Like you're just you're just strange. I just had never been in a context <laughs> where that was an element of Christian faith. Right. It might be that an individual because mm. they served in the military or something might. But it wasn't understood as an element of their faith. And I thought that that was really strange as well. Mm. That's really interesting. I mean, where do you feel like that comes from? You know, that that very major. I mean, that to me feels like a very major difference. I mean, so we could have a long conversation. I mean, if we want to go all the way back, right, we could go back to the doctrine of discovery, right? Let me just like head right. into the deepest, the deepest possible discussion. Yeah. Right. We could start with doctrine of discovery, right? And the ways that that animated <laughs> Western Christianity as a whole to think about conquest, right? And taking a, and, and, right, and then right, nation yeah, building right, right, and yeah. flow of that. I won't get into the details, but so. Yeah. Can you give us some like cl- some cliff cliff notes? Yeah, yeah. 1441, Portugal begins enslaving Africans, right? Mm -hmm. And they're doing it explicitly with a Christian imagination. And then like 14, there's a few papal bulls, but one significant one in 1455, Romanus Pontifex, basically a papal bull from the church. So official church teaching that basically says you can go conquer, reduce people to perpetual slavery, all in the name of Jesus, right? And so you conquer and colonize in the name of Jesus and because they're heathens, barbarians, and that's empty lands, right? And so that mindset led to then what would eventually create the United States, Manifest Destiny, right? This right to the lands, this imagination that they are conquering or receiving the promised lands, right, as the new Israel. All of this is shaping how they imagine they have the right to displace indigenous peoples mm. as Christians, right? Right. And then to build a new nation in its place, ignoring that this land has never been ceded, right, from indigenous peoples. And so I think deeply embedded in the story of the United States, if you think about what it means to be American at the deepest level, has been deeply tied into white supremacy, right? And this Christian a disease, social imagination of what it means to be Christian and American at the same time. So when we say Christian, white, and American, and you conflate all those things together into one, then all of a sudden you can see how quickly it becomes hard to disentangle for many people nationalism, Christianity, and whiteness, right? And I think that those are some of the origins. I mean, again, we could get so much more into the weeds of this, but you, you think about a poor white person who otherwise is struggling, impoverished, maybe has a lot in common with other black folk, but you tell them that they're white, that they're American, they're citizens, that they're significant, that they're part of this really important mission of America to bless the nations, a light to the nations, all these things. And it gives them a sense of purpose and meaning, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's just, it's ignoring the particularities of, oh, yeah, all the enslavement and genocide and all that. But someone's sense of identity is actually tied. I mean, you think I watch when people, you know, pledge. I was at a, a symphony in Richmond the other day and they started off with the, you know, pledging to the flower, singing the song or whatever. And people's hands on their hearts and you can see the pride and the emotion in their faith. Their, their identities are tied up into this in a way that I think mm-hmm. most black, I'm not saying no black people, but most black people just 
it doesn't even make sense, right? It's incomprehensible, certainly for our indigenous communities as well. That doesn't make sense to think and interact and, and so identify so deeply um, with myths. And so I think that that aspect is a part of what creates some of that stuff is, is that we've conflated Western Christianity, mm-hmm. Americanism, whiteness all together. And that has shaped so much. It's been uninterrogated for so long. Mm. And people have sanctioned the Amer- uh, America as somehow it's a vehicle of God's purposes, right? right. And, and unless people interrogate that, families, communities, faith communities, right, interrogate these kind of identities and ways that people are socialized and formed in the world, it's going to just perpetuate. Well, Drew, even I would say for myself, Five years ago, you would have said this stuff to me and I would have been like, what are you talking about? And it's been such a long, slow work for me to even begin the process, take one step to hearing what you're saying and being like, yes, this makes so much sense. And now I can maybe, maybe just a little bit put I don't even want to say put myself in your shoes. Not at all. I, the only way I can remotely relate at all is that my I'm a, a missionary kid. And just watching my own family, we're going to save the nations out there. And the whiteness we brought, the cultural whiteness we brought with us, like people would get quote unquote saved in the community. And suddenly they were wearing like a button down shirt and dressing like a white person. And that was what made them look like they were Christians. And I do remember as a little kid being like, what is the issue with that? Now missions, I think they're in the process of learning as well. Other organizations, other than churches. There's, There's some intercultural learning that's happening, right? But we were clueless. My parents were clueless. I mean, absolutely clueless. It was like, if you're a Christian, it means you dress like this, act like this, speak English, read the King James. How you purport your whole body, everything. It's a full, I always say, you know, whose image were people being discipled after, formed into, right? Certainly not a first century Palestinian Jew, right? (laughs) Um, That's not it. It was Western man, right? It's this deep conflation and entanglements of Western civilization with Western Christianity mm-hmm. that created so many of these problems that, again, it so many people have not even begun to interrogate even slightly. In fact, they resist. It's a willful ignorance of resisting to even explore and consider what has gone on for the last several centuries. You know, as a white privileged person, and I think I'm speaking for more than myself because I see it happening all around, all around us, but you think like, oh, well, like we're not contributing to racism, right? Like we're good people and you're ignoring what you were talking about before, which is like this systemic issue that by not working to make changes, we are actually part of the problem. And so then it just continues, right? And I'm sure you're going to talk about this a little bit more later when we get into, you know, solidarity and 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 some of the tangible ways that, you know, we can actually be helping <laughs> and not creating more yeah. problems. Yeah, no, I think that we all live by stories, <laughs> big stories and little stories, right? Mm. Um, we have family stories, even if they're sometimes dishonest or uninterrogated, but we have family stories that shape our understanding of the world. We have faith stories and how they're told can shape deeply how we interrogate and live in the world. We have national stories, right? That shape our imagination for what's going on all around us. 
it's easy to look at individuals and be like, oh yeah, these are the bad folks. But are we still living into a really troubling story, right? I think that those are really important mm. questions for us to all ask. Mm. And it's really hard to disrupt when you're not even aware that you're living into a story and how much it has captivated your imagination, right? Your social imagination, your moral imagination, yeah. uh, your spiritual imagination, all of that. Yeah. So true. We'll get right back to today's podcast episode, but we wanted to give a shout out to a few of our Patreon supporters, Kristen Cook-White, Amber Ostrup, Kelsey Longino. Thank you so much for your support. For just $3 a month, you can be a part of our private Facebook group and help us keep the lights on at Deconstructing Mamas. And now, back to the episode. Well, how has it played out for you, like, in your own personal story? Do you have a little example or share? Because I think, for me, my heart has changed a lot when I get proximate to other people's stories. I can't dismiss your story. So I, I love this. So can you just give us a little glimpse into that for you? Yeah. The huge moment for me was coming to a Christian college campus, right? And being immersed in a white Christian context. That was the pivotal moment for my entire life in terms of a lot of the work that I do now mm. is because I got immersed and I saw something was just seemed off in terms of people's capacity to do the basic, basic things, love your neighbor, right? I'll give a little background. So I grew up in Norristown, Pennsylvania. Mm. How do I describe Norristown? It's both- I, I grew up in Lansdale, so I'm familiar with Norristown. <laughs> yes, yeah, so you're familiar with Norristown. Well, and I'll, Lansdale fits into my story too in a moment. Oh, great. But it begins, right, with me in this predominantly Black and Latino, but also significant white and a lot. There's both in Norristown School District, like- there's Northtown Borough. So there's like poor whites in the borough. And then there's like suburban, like East Norton, West Norton outside of it as well. Right. And that's all one school district and we're all mashed together. It was just an interesting space to grow up in. So you have all the kind of what stereotypical urban issues because of laws and policies that perpetuate, you know, harm in, in neighborhoods going on Norristown. And you're also being exposed to folks who live in the suburbs and who live pretty advantaged lives. Right. Then my family, we had a fire at our house and we ended up moving into the North Penn School District 10th through 12th grade. So 10th through 12th grade, I'm all of a sudden in a majority white school. There is pockets of racial minorities. And I know that has increased even since when I was there. Uh, but nonetheless, coming from Norristown, it was quite a culture shock for me, right? And so I'm navigating new space and trying to figure out how to live there. And then goes from there to, to the Christian college and it was strange because it was actually the Christian college that was actually the most racist space I had ever been in, right? Wow, yeah. And trying to figure out and understand what was going on and why so many of my peers um, were acting and re responding to us Black students in particular in the ways that they were, that like rocked my world in some ways. Mm. And so like leaving that campus, I both had a stronger commitment to justice on one hand, but also some deep, I guess you could say theological questions, right? It's like, what is up with Christianity? Is there something wrong with it? Is it any good? Like, what is going on, you know? And so I became very passionate about the way that I at least understood my interpretation of Christianity and what I would say the more liberative prophetic streams of the Black church can offer in conversation with the historic witness of the mainstream white dominant cultural church in the West. Hmm. 
So yeah, everything that I've done was shaped out of me responding to the nationalism, the racism, the lack of basic compassion, like the basics. Like I wasn't even, I mean, now I ask so much more of folks, but I wasn't, back then I wasn't looking for that much, right? Just the very basics of what I thought it meant to be a Christian. What were you noticing? Yeah. Like what were specific, yeah, yeah, not yeah. to call out like a certain, this is across the board, like what were you noticing? Yeah. Just in general, there were trends. Yeah, yeah. The first thing was just little, little things, just the way that people were actually literally responding to my body and my presence. So people who didn't know me, mm-hmm. I could tell like, People were like scared of me or saw me as a threat. And I did realize like it didn't take long before talking to a few folks that many people there had never even interacted with black people ever. Right. So that was new to me because that's not the kind of white people I was used to. Right. I was used to white people who had interacted with black people before. And so you have some folks who are just completely or maybe there was like one black kid in their whole school or something, you know, that kind of thing. And so there was a certain sense like, all right, I understand that. But it was like over and over again being seen as a threat, I think, Mm -hmm. and having eyes to be able to detect like over and over again, the way that people are changing their posture and interacting with you and even saying weird things just to try to, I don't know, it was just strange stuff sometimes. So that was one thing. And then the comments would come like, you know, oh, most of the black people here, most of the black men, they're here because basketball, but they don't really, you know, like that kind of, it was just ridiculous, stupid comments. And then I remember what, one of the things that really hurt, I think was, I remember it was somebody, not like a close friend of mine, but was in my friend group overall, who said something about, so my year that when I came, there were very few black men in particular my year. There was only, it was really small percentage, it seemed. But the following year after that, there were a lot. And one of the people that came were actually a really good friend of mine growing up. I mean, his house was like a second home. I was there all the time. We played basketball and talked basketball, breathe basketball. And I remember her referring to that group of Black students who were the year behind me as thugs. And it was just like the most wounding thing. It was just striking to hear those kind of things. And I could go on and on. I mean, there was... Yeah. Black women were always complaining about mm. white women touching their hair inappropriately like, just because they're curious, mm. just treating mm. them like almost like zoo animals and such. Mm. Just comments sometimes from professors mm. and teachers, even around, I remember there was some comments around, a professor made around, what was it? Oh, the gospel choir and almost like it's not real music or something. Mm. I don't know, just something. And even during worship, I remember at times there'd be some of the students who, mm. when it was worship time, the gospel choir would be leading And it's like they're goofing off and playing almost like it was funny, like it was a joke rather than like a serious form of worship. Right. Where Mm. they couldn't enter in. We were expected to enter into everybody else's worship, but they couldn't enter. It was just like a playful moment where it's a big joke. Mm. And you just see these. I could go on and on and on. And there were some big more among students moments, um, someone wearing a. They thought it was a joke, apparently, to wear a KKK hat thing over their head and all kinds of Confederate flag out of a window. Just stuff, right? I could go on and on and on. But but I think all of collectively together, it just helped expose or unveil the way that so many white Christians continue to be formed by really racialized faith, Right formed into whiteness in really profound ways that they weren't even able to see in themselves. And it was dangerous, right? It was harmful. And so Mm -hmm. people sometimes talk about 
let's say microaggressions. But I mean, the fact of the matter is, it, some, when you're immersed in a space like that, that doesn't even really capture <laughs> one's experience because the collective experience of that is a kind of abuse, right? It's like one time it's nothing, right. but it's the thousandth paper cut, right? And you're hurting like hell after that. And so I think yes. a lot of people left uh, pretty wounded, I think, at that time. And I, I say all that, like, Messiah has always been committed to, like, justice and things like that. And things have gotten, continue to get better, institutionalized and things like that. So that's not the end of their story. Though there's still way more work to be done, right. as almost every Christian college, even the good ones, so to speak, right, have a lot of work to do. Right. But I think, like, so long as you have new waves of white Christian students coming on campus. You're going to have some of these problems because their faith communities are not engaging them. Their families are not engaging these issues. Right. And so they're interrogating some of them interrogating for the first time. Others are just responding defensively. Yeah. I find this quite a bit actually. And I had this happen in my own family yesterday where it's like, if it doesn't happen to me, it doesn't happen to anybody. Yeah. And I saw something yesterday that one of my family members commented on, and I thought, oh my gosh. And it was related to our missionary kid upbringing, where there was some abuse and there's been an apology from the people at large. And one person in my family said, well, you know, everybody's just playing the victim. And if it doesn't happen to me, it didn't happen to me. And it was felt so dismissive. I was really disheartened. And, And that's kind of what I'm hearing you say, it's like, people are just clueless, absolutely clueless about your story and absolutely clueless about all the small microaggressions. And then the large ones, like, you know, hanging a flag out, that's not like, that's just not okay. And I include myself among the people who absolutely would not have had any clue about what was going on. For somebody like you. Right. And I, I mean, I like want to always say like a collective apology for myself. It is one thing that I'm really learning to repent of. And I mean, think a new thought, mm-hmm. think a little bit differently now than all of that's been so ingrained in me in ways I have no understanding of. Mm-hmm. So you talk, I know on your website, we you're very passionate, which I love. It's like favorite. And you have these three things that you talk about that maybe could make change. And maybe this is something you're doing with churches. And you say radical discipleship, public witness, and solidarity are key ways we can bring about systemic change. So just for purposes of time and maybe for our people, we do want to focus on that last one and of solidarity with you. Like, how can we understand, like, what is true solidarity? Why is it so valuable? And then what does that actually look like in our day to day, especially of, yeah. of those of us who are so privileged, like just because of the color of our skin? Yeah. I mean, I think. Mm-hmm. To think about solidarity, I think, is to first, I mean, it's, you know, there's a lot of wisdom from peoples all over the world. Many have, in different ways, you know, Native Americans have talked about the Harmony Way. Dr. King talked about beloved mm-hmm. community, you know, South Africa, Ubuntu, mm-hmm. uh, and we can go on and on. But in fact, I just heard a really beautiful, uh, some of the aboriginals in Australia just heard a really beautiful description of how they talk about country. First, to recognize that there is already an interconnectedness of life that we need to recognize, right? We are already mm-hmm. interconnected and our lives are bound up and our futures are bound up 
in ways that I think we don't often comprehend. And so I think even to start with solidarity in terms of what does it mean to acknowledge that and then lean into that, right? And to acknowledge that when one suffers, we all suffer, right? And that we need to then join in and be responsible for the suffering that's taking place in the world and that we share in that together. So it's not just, Mm -hmm. oh, that poor lad is suffering, right? No, we are suffering. We're in this with you. You know, we need to collaborate. We need to partner and that there's things that we can do together that can't be done apart. Mm. Like, so for example, right, one simple thing, um, Pennsylvania, we have a terrible track record when it comes to funding for public education, right, from the state, from the state side. It's already horrible in terms of tax property taxes, funding, public, that's terrible. And then you add on to it then that the state has not been using the fair funding formula fully. And so it's reproducing inequities rather than shrinking them. And so what's the solution? That we need everyone across Pennsylvania as a whole, at least the majority to say, we're committed to all children, not just our children, right? Mm -hmm. Now that goes directly against the logics that I think most white families and most middle-class and upper-class families think about, which is, I'm going to give my child the best. I'm going to give my family the best. It's all me, mine. It's this really micro, small-looking kind of understanding of the responsibility towards this nuclear family and, you know, to the hell with everyone else, right, basically. Even though we know that school districts are being underfunded, that kids are suffering from that, that there's a long history to how we fund and treat education in this country in particular, especially because of the history of race. And so when we know that that's happening, the only solution is that there have to be people who are not going to benefit from this, who are going to say, we need to take less so that these other school, school districts can have an equitable share of resources to respond to the needs that they have, right? That's a whole different kind of conversation that's not possible under the kind of standard Christian imaginations around take care of your family and family first and all this other kind of nonsense. There's got to be a deeper solidarity and commitment to human beings, especially to those that are disproportionately suffering in our world, um, so that we can actually bring change. Can we have the moral imagination and courage, right, to do what is right for all of us, especially, again, those that are most vulnerable. I think that's the kind of deep solidarity that I'm talking about. And it's going to take not just communities that are harmed, but again, communities that are overly advantaged to all come together and to do what is right. Um, And to say, we're all in this together and we're committed to this and we're going to keep struggling until we see this come through. It's almost embarrassing to admit, I just really I mean, my my daughter's in kindergarten, so it's like my first kid to go to school, right? I just never really thought about it like that. I mean, it's really, it's like, I don't really want to admit that. But, you know, my husband and I were kind of figuring out where we're going to live. It's like, well, what's the best school district, right? right? And like, the normal question. How are they going to, like, how are they going to fund this school well so that our daughter has the best educational experience? Like, that's what everyone thinks, right? You're looking at like the top, how many schools in the state or whatever. And I just never really thought about it differently right, because I mean it's, but it's not accidental right that that people don't think about it that way it's because we don't teach and and think about even faith right, in right, those kind right, of ways right? right and so people are encouraged I think faith communities usually are encouraging their families to do that kind of because that's what the most white churches have done that themselves right when there was white flight what did white white churches do 
Many of them moved ahead and made it easy for white flight to happen, right? They facilitated it. So they're not going against the grain and they're not teaching people to think about going against the grain either. And so how do we begin to ask different kind of questions that actually is conscious of these bigger patterns and social issues, policies and practices that are impacting not just my little neighborhood, but what's my relationship to my neighborhood and that other neighborhood, right? What's what's Lansdale have to do with Norristown, right? That's the question that we've got to be able to ask right, and right. think yeah, that they're, yeah. they're all a part of an ecosystem. And it's there's nothing organic about how we're funding schools. In fact, a lot of people come from other countries like, it seems like the only way this would work is if you know it's going to be inequitable in its distribution. It's like, yes, exactly. That's what it's designed to do, right? It's designed to reproduce inequities. Right. And we're all okay with that. Mm-hmm. And we use, you know, we don't explicitly talk about race and class anymore. We just say good neighborhoods and bad neighborhoods. But it's always about race and class, right? I mean, those are the, that's the most significant mm-hmm. characteristics of what makes, you know, a class good or bad is based on those realities. And so, we need a different kind of formation that actually helps orient us towards asking those kind of tougher social questions. We have to do the social analysis, right? That's part of the solidarity work is that right. we're going to be committed to broader social analysis and then thinking about how do we live faithfully in the midst of these complex right. systems and structures. Right. One of the things that's changed for me, my viewpoint a little bit is instead of like even good or bad neighborhoods, which is just also that us them mindset, right? I've been trying to switch it around to wounded and privileged, you know, those who are suffering and those who are privileged. It's like, then all of a sudden it switches in my heart Mm -hmm. to see like a neighborhood or a school system that's really suffering. And my daughter is a teacher in Pennsylvania. And she even said this year, she is in, was in a more, middle classy kind of school district. She did teach in an impoverished school district for four years. She misses it in many ways, but now she is in a a less impoverished, except this year from the way it's been redistricted, there's a lot more kids in poverty. And the way they can tell that is more kids are getting free and reduced lunches. Correct. And the other day we were in a conversation and she said, oh my gosh, they can't even sit still like this is crazy. And then she said, except for if I go back to when I used to, the way I used to think in my old district, I viewed it as they don't even have their basic needs met, right? which is love and safety. And so then I can come at them with compassion instead of behavior management. They're suffering and they need compassion and they need my care and they need my love and yeah. support. Because a lot of the students have trauma, Right. A lot of them instead of that, they're bad kids, significant trauma going on. Yeah. Trauma don't have the resources. Yes. Trauma. Instead of that, they're bad kids. It's like even that good and bad. It's like, oh, my goodness. It's it's really dangerous. Right. And and this. So the one thing, because Renee, my wife and I, we chatted and, you know, we send our kids to the Harrisburg School District, which is interesting. Even professors at Messiah were like, you're going to send your kids to the Harrisburg School District. They're horrified. Right. But so my response has always been like, well, where else am I going to send my kids? Because if I send my kids to the West Shore schools, right, where black kids have for decades not been welcomed, right, I don't have the psychological degrees to undo the trauma that they're going to experience in those spaces. But I do know how to navigate underfunded schools like at, and And then the other thing that we've talked about mm-hmm. is just that 
I mean, it's interesting, especially being a professor and seeing how students show up in my classroom and what their ethics and convictions and what their values are. And I'm deeply convinced that, you know, I can supplement my kids' education. I can make sure we have the resources and stuff. We can help to make sure. But actually, there's something actually, uh, and this goes back to solidarity, right? We do our children a disservice if we raise them in such ways where they're formed and, and live in ways where they do not have close proximity to those who are poor, to those that are suffering, to those who are struggling, to everyday real life issues. Like, I want that for my kids. I feel sorry for the kids that are clueless of people's everyday lives, right? And so I actually feel like when we talk about good and bad and all these things, like, I actually feel like I'm giving my kids a rich experience, a full life of what it means to be fully human in the world. And the academic part is just one piece of a holistic thing that I want to have for my kids in terms of their experience. And I want them to have close proximity to black people, to poor people, to people that are struggling, even people that have addiction. I want them to understand the world, right? And to be compassionate and hopefully have a heart for justice as they leave from that space as well. So those are some, uh, and I know there's a lot of different ways. I don't think there's one way to raise your kids to care about those things, but that's some of the decisions that we've made in terms of, you know, uh, what solidarity can look like is to see that there's actually benefits also, right? To not severing yourself from the lived experiences of those on the underside. That's such a good point because I think that like the the natural instinct, especially in evangelical communities, right, is to like, like you said, we're protecting our own, like protecting our kids. We create these like small classical Christian schools where like our kids are in a class with 12 other kids that all look like them and think like them and act like them. And we're like protecting them from the world. And then we're missing out on really being able to be a part of the world. And not just absorbing some of the things that are going on around us, but also just having the eyes to see. This is what life can look like. This is how so many people are living. And our perspective and our experience isn't everyone's experience. One thing I hear you saying, and I love that what you said was about the full life. I know for me, I always wanted to live like a happy life instead of a full life. And a full life encompasses suffering and heartache, joy, celebration, and all those other things. All of it. All of it. But a full life is all that it means to be human. And the other thing that I'm so excited to hear you say is that when one of us suffers, we all suffer. And there is an interconnectedness. It's not like, oh, them over there in, in Harrisburg, which is I would think a, a more impoverished yeah. school system yes. for those of yeah. our listeners who don't live yeah. in central Pennsylvania. Yeah. Those people aren't going to affect me. I do think it's part of the Christian experience that we create a community where nobody else can get inside. Mm. And everybody outside of Christianity mm-hmm. is a threat. And so if we have that deep-seated fear pounded into us or spoken into us or whatever from birth on in the Christian experience. It has to play out like this. I think the history of Christendom has shaped Christians to think of these hard lines of us and them, right? Those in the Christian world and those outside the Christian world, right? We And our mission is to everyone else, right? And so there's no mutuality. There's no human sharing of life in organic ways um, that's reciprocal, right? Because our mission is to impose on other people who need 
you know, God in their lives, that kind of mindset, right? So I think there's that dynamic. So my kids have not been raised at all like I was raised. We are part of a faith community that is not only racially diverse, we're socioeconomically diverse, but we also encourage a lot of interfaith solidarity work as well in our congregation. We have a lot of folks in our congregation that are part of organizing work. I'm involved in organizing work, but so are others in the community on a range of different topics who are always collaborating with the local mosque and synagogue and other leaders from other traditions and such. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think my kids would carve up the world in those kind of ways. Probably everyone probably carves up the world in some way, right? But it probably has a lot more to do with right. uh, those that are doing harm and oppressing others versus those that are on the underside of that. That's probably, I imagine, more their construct for how they're making sense of the world, but not because of the kind of Christendom lines and imagination that has shaped our mindsets for so, for so long. I feel like what you're talking about is like this basic first step in solidarity, which is like bring the walls down, open up communication. There's like these very basic beginning steps that so many of us aren't taking or didn't know we weren't taking or were told you shouldn't take. And even when you're talking about your church community and just reaching out to other religions and working together to create a different kind of community and to bring about social change and justice, either we don't even think about it or we see see this as this like really huge, massive thing that nobody can actually do. And so we don't take those small, tiny steps to like try and bring about change because it's local right we don't have to solve the world's problems you just have to collaborate with your neighbors and your community leaders and stuff (laughs) and see us all as working towards the flourishing of our neighborhoods and communities right and we can do that together better than we can do that apart Hmm. yeah what's been the hardest part for you about communicating say your passion about this with your boys All our boys have at different times, they've been to vigils and rallies and things at different times with us. And I think it's important and not enough. I mean, that's why when I say trying, something like, I don't know if I bring them enough. You know, I want them, they know that I'm doing it, but they're not always with me. Sometimes they are, but not, not enough, probably, if I'm really honest. And when we're home, I mean, conversation is just, this is just converse every day, just we, we don't like, it's not like adult time versus, you know, this, <laughs> but I don't know if we're always, I think Renee and I are always wrestling with like, are we being intentional with like walking through like where they're at to help them think about. So it's just a part of the air. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we've been as intentional in some ways, right. In terms of helping them talk through it. Like we kind of take it for granted, I guess, right? Which I do think like there is osmosis that happens and I I do hear, and I think if you talk to my kids, they're going to pick up on that. But I do think you want more than that, right? And so what's that balance of really slowing down at six-year-old level, at the 10-year-old level, at the 12-year-old level to really talk through Mm -hmm. the reasoning for why we do what we do so they can have some area to talk or question or wrestle or whatever, whatever it is, however they respond. Right. I think that would be the one thing. It's not a problem, but it's, it's the ongoing question, right? Like, am I being intentional enough? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Every parent's problem. Every parent. Yeah. Every parent feels that way. Do you think that there's, and this is a big topic of conversation out there. And I, I, I would imagine our listeners are asking this. You have a six-year-old, you have a 
eight-year-old and an 11-year-old? Six, 10, and 12. Six, 10, and 12. The conversations look very different with your 12-year-old versus your six-year-old. And you started to allude to that. Yeah. How have you gone about having it be more age appropriate? Because this is hard. I mean, to talk about slavery, to talk about young Black men who've been killed by police, all of those very heady and violent topics. Mm -hmm. How do you navigate that? At what ages is it appropriate and inappropriate? One of the things I think that we have always been very intentional about is the kind of books, children's books that we pick. And so that is always space for conversation. So like, you know, my kids hated us for it, but you know, like over the summer, sometimes we'd have them like reading a book and then like doing a little like write up report or something on it, you know, like that kind of stuff. We're that kind of parents, right? But but it'd be like a book that like talks about American history from slavery to the presence, but for kids, you know what I mean? And so it's helping them understand the story, but in a way that is very accessible and connects them into the story. Like that kind of intentionality, right? Around the kind of resources and stuff like that, I think are easy ways for us to have conversations at very age appropriate where they're likely then to be asking questions and dialoguing further as well. I think when bigger things happen, I mean, we do talk about just about every, just about everything in some way, probably gets talked about some just openly, right? Mm-hmm. We might have one-on-ones with our older two, right? And and talk and ask questions and just see where they're at or how are you guys feeling about what just happened? You know, that kind of stuff and kind of letting them process as well. Again, I say this all as like, I'm not some model for this because we're always wrestling with if we're doing it enough and well, but, but at least these are some of the things that we want to do and try to do, yeah. Hmm. I have noticed for myself that I have to kind of like get over myself a little bit. There's a lot of things that I wasn't taught, didn't know, wasn't comfortable hearing about growing up. And even with little things like my daughter's asking me about like Mm -hmm. Indigenous Peoples Day, right? And I'm like, whoo! Like, you know, I'm like, yeesh, I don't know if I want to get into that with her because I'm uncomfortable, but pushing Mm -hmm. through anyway and doing my best to find resources online of like, okay, how do I bridge this topic with a Mm -hmm. six-year-old and moving past my own discomfort to be able to have hard conversations with my kids about reality and things that happened and things that are important to note about history and things that are happening right now. That can be tricky, but I do think that's an important piece of this. We don't have to have all the answers. I don't have all the answers because I'm still learning, but I'm doing my best to find resources and pushing through, you know, some of my own yeah. blockade to to help create change in the way that I'm introducing my daughter to the world. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's so important. One of our kids were talking about Columbus and they go, and we're like, what exactly did your teachers tell you? We were interrogating them. Like, <laughs> like well, that's not really true. Da, 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 da. And it, we want them to know not to, to also not trust or take for granted the kind of sterilized versions of what they're being told about indigenous people. Right. And I want them to understand, like, in the same way that yeah. we do that as black Americans, we also have to question these kind of really pretty stories that are just oversimplified and ignoring the harm that has been done to indigenous people. Right. And so I think, yeah, it's really important to have those conversations probably is easier for me as a black man. I have no stake in disrupting and challenging them. (laughs) But nonetheless, it's all important for all of us to be doing that work. So I love that posture of curiosity, just saying, Hey, you probably heard this on the news sometime today or I think about that with, say, your boy who's 12, 
and he hears about a you know a young black man being shot what energies does that evoke in him yeah right yeah and so what about that with yeah. any kid that we have mm-hmm. what energies are you afraid you're going to be shot even our like quote unquote white kids what did that evoke mm-hmm. inside of you right and so i i just i really appreciate that what you're saying and i i do think my daughter who's a teacher second grade teacher she always is so intentional about the books she reads in her classroom on these kind of days and making sure they're age appropriate and that they're Mm -hmm. bringing all the viewpoints. And so you can, if you have a teacher or a school system that you trust, reach out. The teachers do have good books for you. Yeah. 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 Or if you feel like they don't like give some to the office, right? Like like, send them their way. Yeah. Well, Drew, this has been, I mean, you are a wealth of knowledge and so gracious, you know, in your conversations for, I could just listen to you talk for hours. I mean, I really could. And so we might have to have you on again. If you want more of what Drew has to say, you can grab his books, who will be a witness and trouble I've seen, but where else can people find you, Drew? I know you have a website and you have some things set up. So where can people find you for more? Actually, probably the best place to look is um, Inverse Podcast. So I co-host a podcast with Jared McKenna. He's from Australia. We have mm-hmm. a kind of international conversation going. It's a lot of fun. Um, so check those out. And there's actually a community behind that as well. A lot of online groups and stuff, really cool stuff happening. Again, it's a, it's a unique because it's a kind of global, kind of like decolonizing space from a global perspective. So it kind of decenters America from being the center of the story as well. Mm. I have a new book that'll be coming out in November. It's It's a little bit more academic, but I think it's important for the life of the church. It's called Reparations and the Theological Disciplines. Prophetic Voices for Remembrance, Reckoning, and Repair. So that'll come out in November. Wow. And wow. Yeah, I'm really excited about uh, that resource coming out. Well, thank you so much for just helping us take one little step toward understanding solidarity and then what maybe we could do and how we can even just yep. work on ourselves. <laughs> yeah, no, this has been great. And uh, yeah, I'd love to come back anytime. Great. Thanks. Right. We will for sure Thanks. have you. Well, that's it for this episode of the Deconstructing Mamas podcast. We love that you tuned in and hope that this gave you a little bit of grace and space for your soul to breathe. Don't forget to catch up on any of our episodes that you missed. And remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Deconstructing Mamas. That's where you'll find all the information that you need about the podcast, as well as on our website, deconstructingmamas.com. You can also sign up for our weekly newsletter when you get there. If you'd like to support the podcast, join our Patreon network for just $3 a month and have access to our private community with all kinds of extras. Leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts or just tell others about the show. Thanks for listening and come back again for our next episode. We can't wait to be on the other side of your headphones.